The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew? And uh, I'm sure you all are understanding the fact that we have baptisms here in just a few moments. And so with seven baptisms, we're going to need to make this a little bit shorter. But we do want to just introduce our study of the Gospel of Matthew Uh, Today, we are thrilled to be able to begin this wonderful book. Some of you may be wondering why why the Gospel of Matthew. Let me just give you a few reasons why we've decided to make this book our next study. First of all, it's been a while since we've been in a Gospel. We were in the Gospel of John from 2006 to 2011, five years. That tells you a little bit how long this series is going to be. It's going to be a while, so sit in, buckle up, here we go. Uh, but it's been a long, long time since we've been in the gospel, we, and we want to go back to that because over half or nearly half of the New Testament is uh, contained in the gospels. The second reason we want to do this is because we want to immerse ourselves in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want our minds and our hearts flooded with the realities of who Christ is. Uh, We are saved, and the reason God has saved us, if you placed your faith and trust in Him, is to make you like Christ. And the best way for us to become like Christ is to know Christ. And so there's no better way to know Christ than to immerse ourselves in a gospel which tells us about His life and ministry. So that's the second reason. Third reason we want to spend some time in the gospel of Matthew is because we never want to forget our salvation. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his life, by his work. We never want the good news to just become old news. We never want to become so familiar with the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we get bored with them. We want to know and love our Savior, and so we want our minds transformed and fixed upon the work that he has done for us. And so this morning, we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're starting it today because the first chapter is obviously about his birth, and we're going to time this to just help us celebrate his arrival here on earth 2,000 years ago so that we can celebrate his coming here properly. We're going to dive into chapter one next week, uh, but this morning, I want to just introduce to us the Gospel of Matthew. You are well aware of the fact that there are four Gospels. And you may wonder why we have four Gospels of the same person. There's a reason for that, and it is because each Gospel gives us a different perspective on the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us that he is the king, and it tells us about his coming kingdom. It is Mark who tells us about the fact that he is a servant, and so there's no genealogy in the book of Mark because you don't need a genealogy when you're talking about a servant. Servants' genealogies don't matter. Luke tells us that he is the son of man. It's an emphasis on his humanity. And so there is a genealogy there going all the way back to Adam to teach us about the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it is John which tells us the fact that he is the son of God. And it emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. This morning we begin Matthew, which tells us that Christ is the king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one whom the Old Testament anticipated and prophesied about and said is coming, and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that was spoken in the Old Testament. He is Israel's 
long-awaited king. He is the heir of the kingly line in the Old Testament. Come with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This theme is present even in the very first book. Matthew 1, verse 1 says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is Jesus the Messiah. Maybe your version says Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is the word Christos in Greek. It means the anointed one. This is Jesus Christ the King. This is the genealogy of the King and his coming kingdom. And everything in this book from the first chapter to the last chapter helps us understand the fact that he is the true king. He's the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the one that was spoken of from Genesis to Malachi. It's interesting though, kings have kingdoms. You can't be a king and not have a kingdom. And so it's interesting that the, one of the primary phrases throughout the book of Matthew is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It occurs 32 times in the book, and the word kingdom itself, in other contexts in the book, occurs almost 50 times total. This book is about the king, and this book is about his kingdom. It's about his rule that he came to bring upon this earth. It's about the fact that he came to earth to establish his throne and to establish his earthly reign and to rule and to reign with all power and all authority here physically on the earth. That's what Matthew is about. It's an important book. It's important because it is the hinge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And God in his providence has placed Matthew in the canon right where it is. Now, you understand that God inspired the books of the Bible. He didn't necessarily understand or inspire, rather, the order in which the books were written and are contained in the canon, but he providentially ensured that they were arranged in a certain way to assist us to learn. And the book of Matthew occurs at the very critical point at the beginning of the New Testament. It takes us from Old Testament to New Testament. It takes us as a bridge or a hinge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And it shouldn't surprise you that the book of Matthew has many Old Testament references. Sixty, in fact, are direct quotes or citations from the Old Testament, nearly 250 other allusions to the Old Testament. And so Matthew stands at a critical point in the New Testament, bridging the gap from the Old Testament to the New Testament, drawing us from the Old Testament and all those prophecies into the New Testament, and focusing our attention on the fact that Jesus is exactly who the Old Testament anticipated he would be. It's about a king and his coming kingdom. And I can't think of a better topic to study because I'm weary of politics. And I'm tired of contested elections and political rhetoric and pointing the fingers and lies. And I'm sure you're with it because a lot of heads are going north and south. We're all weary of it. And you should be, because no earthly king will give you what you want, no matter who it is. 
but there's one who will. There is a king. He has come once. He is coming again. And he will be the perfect sovereign. He will be the perfect ruler. He will be the true king and president and monarch of this world. And he's come once and he's coming again. And that's why we need Matthew to tell us about this king. And so to introduce this book this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. There are no points in my sermon. There are no slides. There's really no points to write down, which is if you've been here for a while, you know that that's not typical. I want to do basically a survey of the whole Old Testament with you from Genesis to Malachi in 26 minutes. (laughs) You laugh. You don't think it can be done. (laughs) Have you no confidence in me? (laughs) I want to show you what Matthew is thinking. I want to bring to bear upon you the Old Testament so that when we come to Matthew, you can sense exactly the anticipation and know why Matthew is so committed to the Old Testament and so committed to focusing on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated. So here we go. Genesis 1. Turn in your Bibles. Get them ready, warm them up, because we're going to go fast. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We need to start right at the beginning. God in six days created all things, and on the sixth day created man and woman. He said in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now stop right there. That's very significant, because up to this point, he's been saying, let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was. This is different. Let us, the Godhead, they're personally involved. Not that he wasn't involved previously, but now there's something personal and intimate about this act of creation, the creation of man and woman. It involves the whole trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have agreed before the foundation of the world to create a people. And those people, some of them, God would redeem and Jesus Christ would save and the Spirit would sanctify. And all the, the whole agreement took place between the members of the Godhead. And now they're together saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Skip down to verse 27, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Notice four times, twice in verse 26, twice in verse 27, it is stated that we are made in the image and the likeness of God. We are created to reflect God's nature. We are made in his image to reflect his design and carry out his work in this world. Now, go down to verses 26 and 28. Because part of being made in the image of God involves us exercising dominion. Listen very carefully. This is very important to the book of Matthew. God has created us to exercise dominion over his creation. Notice verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing. Then on to verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, etc. God created man to be a sovereign ruler. God created man to be his vice 
regent, to, to rule in his stead. This is one of the reasons that you and I exist. We exist to mirror God's image, and one of the ways we mirror his image is by exercising dominion over his creation. Under his authority, he is the sovereign. We have delegated rule. It's been given to us to exercise dominion over God's creation. That's the way he designed it. He designed that there would be a vice regents. Go to Genesis 3. There's a problem. There's a problem just probably a matter of days after God created man and woman. Man and woman sinned. Genesis 3 tells us that story. Verses 17 to 19 describe the curse upon Adam and describe the fact that the ground which he will work as part of his responsibility of exercising dominion over God's creation is now cursed. There's thorns and there's thistles, and by the sweat of your face, you will have to work this land. This is part of the curse on man. Work becomes difficult. Exercising dominion becomes more challenging. However, notice up in verse 15 that there is a glimmer of hope. In the midst of this cursed world, in the midst of the fact that the dominion that we are called to exercise is now made much more difficult, notice in verse 15 that there is a glimmer of hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is God speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There is in the curse a glimmer of hope. There's someone coming, a seed of Eve, a snake crusher. Though this person will experience suffering at the hand of Satan, it is this person, the one who comes in the line of Eve, who would be a king that we're going to see in just a moment, who will deal the death blow to Satan. This hope is built within the curse. Go over to Genesis chapter 12. What we're doing is we're tracing a silver thread through the Old Testament in order to bring us to Matthew. So we have learned from Moses in Genesis that there is going to be a seed of Eve who's going to bring hope to this world that has been afflicted by sin. How is this going to come? Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3 tell us that there's going to be one in the line of Abraham. Notice Genesis 12 chapter 1. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you, mark this, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is God's promise by which he's going to fulfill the promise he made back in chapter 3, verse 15. This now begins to tell us the means by which he's going to do that. There will be a descendant of Abraham who will be the means by which the entire world will be blessed, according to verse 3. A king who would establish his throne and his kingdom, and it was through him, it would be through him, 
that this source of blessing would come to all the nations. Go to Genesis 49. Who is this king? Genesis 49, we get a few more details on who this king is. So we learn that there's going to be a seed of hope. And we know from Genesis chapter 12 that it's going to come through Abraham. And Genesis 49 tells us who it's going to come through specifically, what line. You remember the Abrahamic covenant is passed on from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. And we learn here in Genesis 49 which of Jacob's 12 sons this king will come from. It would come through one of his progeny. Genesis 49, verse 8 through 10 says, Judah, your brothers will praise you, and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He crouches. He couches, rather. He lies as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Now watch this, verse 10, the scepter. What's a scepter? It's what belongs in the hand of a king. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. There's one coming in the line of Judah who will hold the scepter and who will have the ruler's staff, and his name is Shiloh, which is another name for this king. And notice, verses 11 and 12, what kind of kingdom this ruler will bring in place. Notice the the blessings, know the prosperity that, that he is going to bring in when he rules. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. In other words, grapevines will be so abundant in this kingdom that you'll hitch your donkeys to them. And not only that, he washes his garments in wine. Wine will be as plentiful as water. And his robes in the blood of grapes. Notice verse 12. And his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. It will be such a prosperous reign that all your teeth will be white because there's so much milk. Sounds strange to our ears, but milk does the body good. (laughs) This is talking about prosperity. Abundance. Go to Numbers, Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. So what have we learned? We've learned that there's a glimmer of hope in the curse, and we've learned that this king is going to come through the line of Abraham, and specifically, we've learned that he's going to come through the line of Judah, and he's going to be a king, and he's going to rule, and he's going to usher in this marvelous kingdom. Notice Numbers chapter 24. This is the prophecy of Balaam. You remember Balaam was hired by Balak to pronounce a curse on Israel, and instead Balaam pronounces a blessing upon Israel. Notice Numbers 24, verses 15 to 17. It says, he took up his discourse, Balaam did, and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eyes is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Now watch this, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter 
will rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheph. It's the same thing that Judah was told back in Genesis 49. There's coming a king. And his dominion and his kingdom will be so powerful that he will crush all his enemies. He will rule with all power. He will rule with all authority. And he will have total dominion. So do you see what the Pentateuch is telling us? There's a king who's coming. He's going to rule with all power, with all might, with all authority, and he will possess a kingdom. Well, that's what the first five books of the Bible tell us. It continues. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. What do the historical books tell us? If the Pentateuch tells us that this king is coming, then do the historical books support this as well? Of course they do. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and here we learn that this king not only comes from the line of Abraham and through Judah, but that is also the line of David, and this king will come from that David. This is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we learn here at the beginning of this chapter that David wanted to build God a house. Verses 1 to 7, he wants to build God a house. David has built a house for himself. He's residing in this house, and now David understands that the tabernacle has no place to reside, and so he wants to build a house, a temple for the tabernacle of God. And so he says, I'd like to do that, and Nathan comes to him and says, yeah, go ahead, why don't you do that? And yet at night, God comes to Nathan and says, no, I don't have those plans for David. David won't build me a house. He's a man of war. He's not allowed to build this house, this physical house. But God promises to build David a house, a spiritual house. Look at verse 8, a little bit longer passage, but start in verse 8. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Huh. David says, I want to build God a house. God says, I'm not going to let you build me a house, but I'll build you a house, a dynasty a line of kings. Verse 12, when your days are complete, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's this? This is Solomon. Solomon is the first one who would receive the blessings of this promise and Solomon would be the one who would build the temple for God. But notice at the end of verse 13, it's a promise of an eternal kingdom. That can't refer to Solomon. So Solomon must be the first near fulfillment of this promise, and there must be a later, further, fuller fulfillment of that promise in another king who would come later. Notice verse 14, Solomon is told, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, and when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of my men, uh, of men, but my loving kindness will not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I, whom I removed from before 
you, God will discipline some of these kings because of their disobedience. Solomon being one of them. But notice verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne shall be established forever. That's the statement of a divine dynasty. A king who's coming, who will have a house, who will have a kingdom, and who will sit on David's throne, the ultimate son of David, who would rule a kingdom that will never end. So this king is going to be in the line of David. So the Pentateuch tells us about this. The historical books tell us about this. How about the Psalms? Go over to Psalm 2. Let me show you just how this theme carries over into the Psalms. Go to the second Psalm, Psalm 2. Let me show you that this same theme carries over into Psalm 2. This is one of the royal Psalms. There's actually a number of royal Psalms. Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 110. Here we have Psalm 2. And notice, notice what wicked governments think about God. Verses 1 to 3. It says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Wicked governments hate God. They hate him. And they want to overthrow anything that seems to indicate that God is there and has something to say about them. Notice the futility of this, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Who gets the last laugh? God does. You know why? Because of the king he's bringing. Notice the next three verses. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Who is this king? It's God's son. That's what verse 7 says. And God promises to give this king the nations as an inheritance and the very ends of the earth as his possession. There is a king coming who will establish his throne and establish his rule, and he will rule with all power and all authority under the headship of the Lord God himself. And notice what will happen when this king comes. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron and you will shatter them like earthenware. You think the nations of this world are something? Think again. They've got nothing. 
on the King of kings and Lord of lords when he returns to this earth. So the Pentateuch tells us there's a king coming. The historical books tell us there's a king coming. The Psalms tell us there's a king coming. What about the prophets? Go to Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Keep turning to the right until you get to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, you know this very well. This is one of the most well-known Christmas verses. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the what? The government will rest on his shoulders. Notice verse 7, there's also a statement of his government. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Verse 6, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And what will this king be like? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That is the character of this ideal king. Those are his attributes. He will be the Wonderful Counselor. He is Mighty God. He is Eternal Father. And he is the Prince of Peace. That's what this king is like. And how's he going to reign? Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government. He will reign forever. Not four years. Not eight years. Not 40 years. Forever. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a world where a ruler has the ability to bring perfect peace? We have no idea what that's like. We've just watched it lived out in our country last few months. Just watch what's happening in the world. We have no idea what a ruler like this is like. But he's coming. His rule will be eternal. His rule will be peaceful. Notice verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. This is a Davidic king. This is one in the line of David himself. And notice the characteristic of his rule. It will be just and it will be righteous from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. What kind of king will this be like? It will be a king. He will be a king who will establish a kingdom and will establish a throne with all power and all might and all authority. He will reign perfectly and justly and will bring peace upon the world in a way that we've never known. Turn over to Isaiah 11, just two chapters. Isaiah 11, what's this king going to be like? Verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Wow. To have a king like that? 
who doesn't just have to gather all the evidence and try and make the best verdict he can, to have a king who knows the hearts of men and everything that's going on in their hearts? Notice verse 4. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. That's the kind of king we want, Lily. Listen, the Supreme Court doesn't always get it right. But a king is coming who will get it right. Every time. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The righteous will be the belt, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. This king's perfect. This king knows everything so he can rule perfectly. And notice how far the peace of this king's kingdom extends. Notice verses 6 to 9. Isaiah 11, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Huh. Vegetarian lion. <laughs> the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. What kind of kingdom does this king bring in? A kingdom where there's animal-animal harmony and animal-human harmony. Incredible. In other words... This king reverses the curse. Isaiah 42, go over there very quickly. Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 4. Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 4. What's this king going to be like? Verse 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Skip down to verse 4. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. That's the kind of king that's coming. One who establishes justice perfectly and his justice prevails throughout the entire world. Just a few more here. Daniel, keep turning to the right. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 2. I wish we had time. We'd take you to Daniel 7 as well, but go to Daniel chapter 2. You remember this is the, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. He has this vision about the statue, a statue with a gold head and silver chest and arms and thighs of bronze and legs and feet made of iron and clay. He sees this vision, and Daniel comes to him and interprets this vision for him and says, listen, the gold head is Babylon. And the silver chest and arms are Medo-Persia, and the thighs of bronze 
are Greece and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay is Rome. He tells us exactly who these kingdoms are. But if you notice up in chapter 2, verses 32 and 33, there is a fifth kingdom. Daniel 2, verses 32 and 33 says, The head of that statue is made of gold, its beast and its arms, a breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and clay. Now watch verse 34. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue of its, on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Go down to verse 44 and 45 because he tells us about this kingdom. Verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. What kind of king is coming? A king who destroys all the kingdoms of this world and establishes his own literal throne here upon the earth. Just a couple more. Go to Micah. Just turn a few prophets to the right. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Another Christmas verse. Where would this king come from? But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you. One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Where's this king going to come from? Bethlehem. And what's he going to be like? He's going to rule with all power and all authority until the days of eternity. One more, Zechariah. Second to the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. And by the way, there's many, many other passages. This is just a short survey. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he, who? This king that we're speaking of, he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What kind of king will this be? A king who rules with all power, all authority. It will be a worldwide dominion, which is what God created us to do. And we blew it when we sinned in the garden. And God's bringing an earthly king to restore exactly what was undone in the fall. Go to Matthew 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King. Who is this King? And though he was rejected, he came.
came, he made a way for sinners to be rescued from their sin, but he is coming again, and at his second coming, he will establish this kingdom that the Old Testament consistently looks at, from the Pentateuch to the historical books, to the Psalms, to the prophets. It's one silver thread all the way through coming to the New Testament. And who is he? It's Christ. And so we get to immerse ourselves in this marvelous book for the next few years. And this morning, in just a moment, you're going to hear the testimonies of seven people who have been rescued by this king. Lord, we thank you so much that your word is a consistent story about the coming of a savior. And we thank you so much, Father, that you've given us this king. And though he does not rule and reign yet upon this earth, he has not established his earthly kingdom, he is coming again. And we look forward to that. And Lord, we rejoice that this king laid down his life to rescue sinners like us. Lord, all glory and praise goes to you. May you be exalted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Well, good evening or good morning, everybody. I'm having Bob hold this so we don't have an accident or something. But, um, so we're here today to baptize, as Todd said, seven people. And we want to talk a little bit about what baptism is. Baptism has no, just to, to clarify, baptism has no salvific value. And when I say that, it means that we don't baptize thinking that we're going to be saved through baptism. That's not the point of baptism. Baptism is one of the two ordinances that Christ gave us and actually did. Christ did the Eucharist, or communion and baptism. And we do baptism to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the, the change in life that's taken place. And so Ian and everybody here today is going to do this baptism as a public proclamation, but also, as Bob said, declaration to, to follow Jesus Christ with their life. So today we celebrate uh, the baptism of these individuals in their um, proclamation and declaration of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So first, we have Ian Haig, who I've known for about four years. He used to be shorter than me when I first met him. <laughs> but, you know, and his hair was shorter than mine. But, you know, so. <laughs> but, um, so Ian, we're going to have Ian give his testimony, and then I'm going to baptize Ian. So. Good morning. Before I met Christ, my life was dominated by me and anything that caught my interest. Music and spending time with my friends is where I found a lot of my pleasure. Overall, I felt pretty good about myself. I was a pretty good kid compared to pretty much everyone else I knew. So I told myself that I didn't need to be saved from anything, even though I knew I did. Since I had grown up in good churches and a Christian household, I had known the truth from as long as I can remember, but I didn't like it because it was uncomfortable. I didn't want to admit that I was a sinner and had to submit my entire life to God, even though I had an acute sense of my sins. I was comfortable in the sins that controlled my life and had no intentions of leaving that comfort zone. I would regularly be convicted at church and during family discussions that I was a sinner in need of redemption, but continually ignored these convictions and told myself that I would deal with my sins tomorrow. After moving to Michigan and starting to attend Maranatha, I began to dislike going to church. It always seemed like whatever was being taught was designed just for me. It made the truth harder and harder to ignore. Looking back, I can see that the Lord was really working on my life during this time. One night, I picked up my Bible and asked God to help me understand what it meant. I read for a couple hours and really began to realize how much of a sinner I was and that I couldn't possibly live in my sin any longer, knowing that I was disobeying my Creator. So I repented from my sins and asked God to change my life to look more like His instead of just doing what I wanted. From then on, the Lord gave me an interest in spiritual things. Instead of dreading going to church, it became something to look forward to, an opportunity to learn, to be convicted, and to spend time with other people that had been transformed and redeemed by Christ. Reading God's word quickly became an interest and has slowly become a habit. Things in this world don't mean as much anymore knowing that they are temporary and inconsequential. Like one of my favorite passages says, 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I'm still very far from perfect. And following Christ most definitely hasn't been comfortable and easy. But every day the Lord works on my heart to make me more like himself and to pursue eternal things instead of temporary things. Like Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Okay, Ian, so based on that profession of faith, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? Yes. Okay, based on that, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Sarah Marvin. I was raised in a Catholic home, although I don't recall ever reading the Bible or talking about it with my family. Most of my young adult life, I chased the pleasures of this world and sought only for my own happiness. I, filled the, I, fill, I was filled with greed, selfishness, pride, and loneliness. I tried to fill that void with people that I knew were not good for me. The loneliness left me always seeking more or something new. I was never satisfied with anything, and sin was normal to me because it was so intertwined with every part of my life. I went on to marry and have children, and because God was not at the center of my family, my marriage and relationship with my children suffered. God saved my husband first, and I watched God do his work in a man that I thought would never change. I watched my husband grow in such deep love with the Lord. It was truly a beautiful and humbling experience to be a part of. At the time, I didn't fully understand it, but I knew I desperately needed Christ in my life. I continued to have a difficult time repenting and turning from my sins, and my husband continued to read me scripture and show me my utter depravity. It was some time later that the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins, and I felt the true magnitude of what Christ had done for me. Repented of my known sins and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I still have a lot of growing to do, but God showed me his grace with each new day he gives me so I can serve and glorify him. Uh, Romans 10.9 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, Sarah. Do you confess that you are saved by Christ and Christ alone? I do. All right. Based on that fact and that confession, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've been a part of Maranatha my entire life and grew up in a Christian home, but I always remember questioning my faith. Then many friendships started falling apart and suddenly I was alone. My life started to crumble. I lost everything that I thought was important. 
I then finally came to a breaking point and told a few of the youth leaders here about it. After that, Rachel Herbert started to mentor me and we went through the book, Lies Young Women Believe, and I began to understand where my worth was and that it wasn't in the friends I had or the things I did, but that my worth was in Christ who covered me in his righteousness. It was at this point in my life that I realized I was a Christian. And the amount of times I sinned couldn't change that. Then everything started coming back together and I found hope again. I began high school and made a lot of I began high school and made a lot of really great friends. Then 2020 hit. Everything seemed fine until March 13. Everything shut down and once again my world was turned upside down. I struggled with fear of uncertainty, but eventually got through that. The months of lockdown were a major roller coaster. Some days really good because I was able to laugh with friends, some days really bad, wondering if we were ever going to get through this. Then school started. Everything seemed so hopeful, but that was quickly diminished. I managed to be okay on the outside, but on the inside I was falling apart. But this time was different. This time I had a really good friend to help me through each day, but I messed up. I said one dumb thing that ruined it all. From that point on, everything got worse. And many days I thought I lost my best friend. We argued a lot more and I hated it. I began to give up. I got worse than ever before, but it all hit a sudden stop. I realized the most incredible thing I think I could ever realize. See, you hear so often about how God uses people's lowest points to show them that they need him. And I never really thought that would happen to me. Not so much because I felt like I didn't need him, but I didn't deserve him. I knew I needed him, but I always subconsciously convinced myself that I wasn't as good as these other people, so they therefore deserve God's love and grace and help. I knew God's grace, but I never allowed myself to be given his grace. I never gave him the opportunity to show me how he could change me. I finally found the root of my problems. I misinterpreted the gospel. I always knew the power of the gospel was that I couldn't do it all, and I would never be good enough on my own, and that Christ came, left the glory of heaven, and lived 30 years as a man to be crucified on the cross and take on the full wrath of God and take my sin in return for his glory to be raised after three days, but I always saw it as just me, not we. I knew I would never be good enough, but failed to see the same was true for all of humanity, and that all stemmed from pride. I assumed I was unsavable. I thought that God couldn't help me. I'm beyond help. And that's just as dangerous as the other end of the spectrum. I didn't fully believe in God's almighty power. One verse that I've always loved, and even more so now, is Psalm 145.8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The part that's always stood out to me is slow to anger. That's not only because I tend not to be slow to anger, but also because the majority of my life I've doubted my faith. I saw how I sinned, how often I sinned, and I hated it. I was always angry with myself. But to know God, the one who knows me better than I know myself, knows every detail of my life, past, present, and future, still looks at me and forgives me, and isn't angry with me, but instead mourns with me over my sin, is incredibly encouraging. Nora, have you fully placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone and recognized his authority and sovereignty over your life? Yes. Well, then it is my pleasure and privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Hello, if you have never met me yet, my name is Aiden Hines. I started attending Maranatha Bible Church a few months ago. Before I became a Christian, I really liked memorizing scripture but was not that interested, and it really had no authority in my life. I felt more secure in myself because of trauma that I had when I was younger and had a hard time trusting people in the Lord. I was neglected as a child, but when some of my Christian neighbors helped out, I felt more worth. When I was ages three through six, my church attendance was inconsistent. I had very little joy, and when I did, I, it was wrapped around things and idols. The early part of my life, I was characterized by a vengeful and self-protective heart. I had, a heart uh, I had a heart of God at the point, but had really no impact in my life. I was adopted into a Christian home and for seven years was taught things about God and the Bible, but really did not have grasp and it did not affect my behavior. I memorized scripture and liked the stories, but did not really understand the gospel. It was God's grace that he put me in a Christian home when we went to church as a family. I went to a Christian school, and when, he had family, when we had family gatherings, we read the word. Over time and through patient teaching, I understood that the gospel, what the gospel meant to me. God used many mentors and people to help me know how much I have sinned and how much I needed a Savior. So that's when I understood I needed repentance, and so I would not have to carry all the weight of my past sin, and I knew God would forgive me. My desires have changed from always wanting wrong and worldly things to wanting God and how I'm growing closer to him. I noticed that when I was an eighth grader that my behavior changed and did not get into as much trouble. After that point, my desires have changed and to learn more about the Bible rather than skipping it or trying to go around it. It is not easy being a Christian either, but I know that when I die, I will not regret all the work I have done. John 3.16 is a meaningful, meaningful verse to me because it was the very first Bible verse I memorized. And it is an important verse, verse to pe for people to know. It helped me grow closer to God and had some key steps to help me becoming a Christian. Aiden, we rejoice in your testimony of salvation. Uh, do you publicly profess that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life? Yes, I do. It is my privilege then, based on your profession of faith, to baptize in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hi, my name is Anna. Um, I grew up learning about God and what he did for his people, but I didn't always strive to serve him. I didn't have a desire to actually do the right thing, and I wanted to live my own way. I would pay attention during the service and go to youth group, but I didn't feel much of a drive besides the fact that my friends were there and I had fun. I wasn't focused on God, but instead I was overly focused on what people thought of me and how to make, th make a better image for myself. About three years ago, I joined a Bible study that a couple of friends and my sister started. I noticed that they had a drive to serve God and wanted to do what was right. They were truly happy and content, and I really respected and wanted that, but felt lost in terms of what to do to get there. I remember we went through the book of James, and we were reading about having true faith. This struck me hard, and I realized that I didn't have that faith. I was ultimately relying on myself to control things. I began seeking out how to serve God and asked more questions. Over the next couple weeks, I felt God working in my life, and I started having a desire to do the right thing. Not just because I knew I should, but because I wanted to please God. I repented for my sins and began praying. Over this time of seeking God, I began to notice that I cared less about what people thought of me and was more concerned about serving God and making my whole identity be in Him. 
I've learned so much in the past few years and will continue to learn and grow in faith. I'm so thankful for the good influences in my life and those who have impacted me to do the right thing and follow after God. I did nothing that would lead me to be saved. It was all through Christ and him working in my life, leading me to repent from my sin and saving me. And for that, I am the most thankful. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in, created, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Anna, thank you so much for your testimony. I, I just love hearing the themes of God sovereignly drawing people to himself and admitting that there's nothing we can do to be saved. So I love your focus on the fact that God drew you to himself. Do you publicly admit before these people and before God that Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have uh, the last two, Mark and Kyle Debniak, uh, are wanting to also become members. They were not able to do that last week. And so this is a joint membership baptism. That's a pretty good deal. It's a twofer. So uh, we're excited to welcome them into the life of uh, this church. And so Mark and Kyle, you've been through the membership class. Uh, you've read through the expectations of what it means to be a member of this church and uh, just before these people, do you uh, desire to be a member and follow the, the um, expectations that God has given in his word about a member of a church? Wonderful. Church family, uh, this is another opportunity just to welcome this dear couple into our church. And so, uh, church, do we uh, admit that we love them, we want them a part of our body, we're willing to welcome them into our fellowship, pray for them, and help them become more like Christ, if that's your desire. Would you please say, we will? We will. Awesome. All right, Mark, come on in. I grew up in a Catholic church and attended a Catholic school throughout the early years of my life. With that said, I was reasonably well-versed in the story of the Bible, but was not well-versed in the concept of salvation. I grew up as a child in a family of modest means. Therefore, my early life and into adulthood was centered on a career and being the provider for my wife and children, and I've been reasonably successful in that endeavor. I believe in, this was the area of my life that provided me with security and fulfillment. However, my children have all moved on with their lives, and as I approached the latter part of my life, a feeling of emptiness and discontent became prevalent. While we had visited many churches since we left the Catholic Church, my wife and I had drifted away from a specific church body, and personally, I felt unfulfilled. When my son went away to college, he became involved in weekly one-on-one -on -one meetings with his team chaplain. These discussions began to make a difference in his life, and he began to share the gospel with my wife and I. After my son left college and got married, he and my daughter-in-law found a church in the Bay Area where the pastor was a master seminarian. When my wife and I would visit them, we enjoyed and were moved so much by the message and sometimes to tears, we began to crave these teachings in our everyday lives. My son helped us research the churches that were led by other graduates from the master seminary, which led us here to Maranatha approximately three years ago. 
After we began attending regularly, I was fortunate enough to schedule several lunch meetings with Pastor Todd. We talked about a variety of topics, and most importantly, the subject of salvation. Pastor Todd explained to me in a simple way that had never seemed to get through to me before. God loves me despite my sin, and he sent his only, earth, his only son to live a perfect life and be crucified and die on the cross to pay for our sins. This would provide the opportunity for us to have a personal relationship with him. We discussed that God knows we are born sinners and that I need to repent and put my trust in God. As this became reality to me and I repent, repented through prayer and began to trust God to use my life for his purposes, the fear and the shame of my sin and the problems that I was experiencing that were dominating my life to that point began to melt away. As I began to read and understand the gospel and read books of the Bible, such as Romans, I began to see the incredible need in my life to know God and build a personal relationship with him through scriptures. To quote John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This incredible event in my life and movement in my life has changed me. It's made me want to be a better man, husband, and father. I feel like I am much more content and confident in my life with its purpose through Jesus Christ as my Savior. My wife and children have commented that I am more loving, patient, thoughtful, and maybe more aware of their preferences. I have also become very eager to share my story of salvation openly with others and encourage them to learn more and to seek their own salvation. Mark, I loved uh, the lunches with you. It was such a joy to sit down and just talk to you about spiritual things. And I know the Lord has gotten your heart because you told me yesterday that people at work are now calling you Pastor Mark. <laughs> Love it. Brother, it is, is it your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior? Yes, it is. Based on that profession of faith, then it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I was raised in a wonderful family. We prioritized being a good person, kind, polite, considerate of others. Although these characteristics can be recognized as Christian values, there was not a religious connection in my house. The thought was that good people were loved by God and of course would go to heaven someday. Um, we belonged to a local church but never attended services. Instead, we kids were dropped off to Sunday school where we learned basic Bible stories and knowledge of who Jesus was. I loved it and got involved in many ways, but what I knew seemed disconnected, and I never quite understood the big picture. I did not know the gospel, but I was always drawn to learning more. By college, I was looking for ways to grow and found FCA meetings and attended a campus church all by myself, mostly because I had a cool guitar mask. And although many of these experiences were interesting and even fun, they were not life-changing. And I began to think that attending church was just that, something that made you feel good and you were a good person for going. I got married and we had children and I repeated what I knew, 
I taught them to be polite and kind and took them to church on Sunday. I grew up knowing that good people go to heaven and I was happy. I was a good mom raising good people. God must be pleased, but I still didn't know that I was missing something more. I think I started to realize there was more to salvation slowly through the influence of people around me. I look back and can clearly see now what was happening. God was sending many Christians to me. Friends I made were speaking of God in a much deeper way, and I kept wanting to know more. But the biggest influence was my son, Alex. He was the first to help me open the Bible and begin to read the word and hear the truth. From California, he and I had a FaceTime date night, and we started with Romans. He so patiently helped me understand what Christ did for me, what the gospel was, and that God's grace was the key to my salvation. It turned out it was a lot more than just being a good person. I finally realized that knowing Jesus and that he is my Lord and Savior is a life changer. I didn't expect it. I did not know how transforming this would be. I actually feel like I see life with new eyes. And when I read Romans today, it means something different than when my son first walked me through it. I have learned to trust God and see myself as a good person, but one who needs to ask for help and forgiveness every day. And I know that the Lord loves me, and I am a strong and better person with him by my side, and that my salvation will be only through him. Philippians 4.13 is one of my favorite verses because it reminds me of this and brings me strength knowing that I can do anything through Christ. And finally, I am so grateful and blessed to have found this Maranatha family and the opportunity to be baptized and reborn to a new life in Christ. Well, Kyle, we are just thrilled by how the Lord has changed your heart, changed your life, brought you uh, into a, a relationship with him. Uh, let me just ask you again, do you publicly profess that your salvation is solely through the work of Jesus Christ? Based on your profession of faith, then, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, we just wanted to... Um, let you know that I'm sure many of you know that Scott Klukowski passed away last week. Um, he was supposed to be baptized today. Um, Scott came to me about two years ago um, because he wanted help with his marriage. And um, I challenged him on his salvation. And within six months, I saw Scott come to Christ and completely change. And he came to me the last week in October, and we, worked, we went over his testimony with him for, this, for today. And so Harold wants to. So, Harold. Um, so, my dad was, uh, met with Joe the last week of October, and it wasn't until this last week that I had found out that he was going to ask me to baptize him today. Um, my dad is, uh, was a man of few words, but he had big gestures. Didn't matter if it was for the little things of going and picking up sand for their backyard 
on my mom's birthday or if it was asking me to baptize him. So it could have just been done in a text. And I don't know what that gesture was going to be, but I'm sure it was going to be silly to everybody but him and me. Um, he was also, uh, he left his testimony very short and sweet, which one of those words describes him. <laughs> you, can, you can guess. <laughs> so, during my early childhood years, my family went to church, but only periodically. I was baptized at birth and lived as if I was good to go. During my teen years into young adulthood, I lived how I wanted to, go, wanted to, with no concern for Christ or the church. Over time, I became addicted to drugs and alcohol and lived my life for pleasure. This lifestyle ended up getting me in trouble with the law. The judge made me go to AA meetings. Although these uh, meetings helped me quit the drugs and alcohol, my heart was still rebellious to God. After this, I continued to live a foolish life, but God saw fit to bless me with a wonderful wife, beautiful family, and a home. After years of not being a good husband or father, the Lord brought me to the end of my rope. I saw my marriage falling apart, and I knew I needed help. My son recommended I go to Pastor Joe for counseling, so I did. I went to counseling hoping to find out how to fix my marriage, but Joe kept challenging me, asking me if I was truly saved. He took me through the gospel using the law of God to review the law of God to reveal my sin. He had me listen to the CD, Hell's Best Kept Secret, and work through the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, with me. During this time, I began to see how holy God is and how bad I really am. I was broken over my sin and knew I needed Christ to save me from, my wrath, from the wrath of God. I understood, I understood that my sin was deserving of death and hell, but that Jesus paid that debt that I owed. I repented and placed trust fully in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Now I can say, I am born again. I have a desire for the word of God. I hear it and understand it like never before. My marriage has gotten better, but not because I am primarily focusing on it, but because I am for focusing on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just... Thank you for all these amazing testimonies this, this morning. They are a testimony to your goodness, Father. And as Harold reads this testimony from Scott, we 
that we do miss him, Father, but we rejoice knowing that he's with you, that he is completely healed. What a blessing, Father. Thank you for that. We pray for Harold and Jordan and Kathleen and the family just for your grace to be upon them. Give them the grace that they need. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.